Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. Fall is here. This is sort of the time of year when, you know, we start to spend more time inside and get all cozy. And what keeps us company when we're doing that? Is it our families? No way. It's movies. So this week we're going to be talking movies with our friend, the writer Lindy West. She's got a hilarious new book out of film reviews. Plus, Kirsten Johnson is going to stop by to talk about her documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead. It explores the impending death of her father, but in a surprisingly not sad way. Then we're going to hear music from Layla McCalla, whose album, which was inspired by the poetry of Langston Hughes, has just been re-released. So get the popcorn popping, uh, get on your comfy sweats. Let's all settle in for another Livewire house party, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hi, Luke. How's it going? It's going real good. I'm going to be honest with you. Mm. Feeling good this week. I'm wondering, um, have you happened upon any good movies or TV lately during the pandemic? Oh, you know what we started doing in late summer was re-watching like, the best prestige TV shows from like 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And it's been so great. We started with Breaking Bad, and now we're almost finished with Mad Men. I did that with The Sopranos. Oh, recently. that's a good one too, yeah. And then I quit like three episodes in because AJ's acting was so bad. I was like... <laughs> really, I was like, wait, is this as good as I thought I remembered it was? So then I just stopped because I, I wanted to keep The Sopranos in its special place in my mind. Um, okay, are you ready to uh, do this radio show? I was born ready. Uh, Molly, were you born recording the show? Because we need to make sure that's being handled. Even in my past life, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> I've crossed oceans of time to record this show. <laughs> All right, Elena, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire! Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire House Party! This week with writer and creator of Shrill, Lindy West, filmmaker Kirsten Johnson, and music from Layla McCalla. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now... Live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! 
Elena. Oh my goodness, thank you. Oh, Elena Passarello. Oh, oh. Thanks also everybody for tuning in this week. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun show. I can't put my finger on it. I'll tell you, Elena, though, energetically. What something is it? Feels, What's, there's just know. something in the air. <laughs> I am feeling very good this week. I hope all of you out there in listener land are ready for a fun show as well. Uh, we have a lot of conversations around the topic of film and cinema this week. And so we thought we would ask the Livewire audience the question, what movie have you seen the most times and why? This is like a real kind of view <laughs> into the personal mm-hmm. side of someone because I, everyone's got a different answer and it always says something about them. Yeah, and the one, the movie that you've seen the most is probably not the movie that you would list as your favorite movie on like a dating right. profile or the or best movie you've you know? ever seen. It's this other weird right. category of the thing you don't change the channel when you see it. Uh, let me ask you that question, Elena. What movie have you seen the most times and why? Clue, the movie. <laughs> like from the like 70s? <laughs> I think it's from okay. the 80s. I saw it in the theater and uh, I watched it every day, sometimes like two or three times a day for several years of my youth. But do you watch it sometimes as an adult because it just is comforting or reminds you of your childhood? Yeah, until gifts started. And, you know, uh, that's a, it's a very frequently, especially Madeline Kahn, flames, the side of my face, burning. <laughs> so then it kind of feels like I'm always watching it. But the local theater in Corvallis, which is called the uh, White Side, had a quote along. Uh, and all my students and I went to go see it. So I did see it then. And it was everybody there was within like three months born when I was born. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of people around this country watching that movie at a certain age. Have you seen it? As it was making an impression. I haven't. I, I've seen that Madeline Kahn meme going around, but I don't think I realized what it was a reference to. Speaking of local theater, um, I would say the movie I've probably seen the most in my life is a spoof of a community theater in the fictional town of Blaine, Missouri, uh. Uh, called Waiting for Guffman, <laughs> which... I, I it, it improves my mood no matter what is going on in my life if I happen to see it. I have it I I have it downloaded to my laptop. So sometimes if I'm traveling mm. and I'm feeling burned out or sad or lonely or whatever, I will just put on waiting for Guffman and it's just like an immediate improvement in how I'm feeling. I think for me it's because I actually really can see myself in like every yeah. character. Like uh Corky, the delusional director of the of the local theater production, or um, Ron, the delusional travel agent, played by Fred Willard, or uh, Dr. Pearl, the delusional dentist, played by Eugene Levy. I think maybe del- being delusional is a real through line in the movie. Yeah. But also it's like it, I, I find the movie to ultimately be so hopeful because this idea that that like what keeps us going in life is a sometimes sort of irrational or misguided optimism Absolutely. about our chances of something working out. Yeah. And and I just so while the movie cracks me up I also just feel my uh, it's life affirming for me yeah. as well. I think it's about the theater too. That's what makes the theater right. great is that it's always almost too ridiculous to handle. <laughs> By the way, not the worst musical numbers I've ever heard. Stupid from the pilot yeah. to the poem. <laughs> <laughs> what are the uh, Livewire listeners saying are the movies that they've seen the most and why? Uh, here's one from Kelly. Kelly says, I'm embarrassed at how many times I've seen the Kiera Knightley Pride and Prejudice. Would you <gasps> like me to recite it for you? 
<laughs> and I have I have a story about that because I okay. I was so not excited about that movie that I actually had a dream in which I was yelling at Donald Sutherland for being in that movie. <laughs> and then I went on a cruise and went and I did not like being on a cruise. And when you're on there, they just play the same movies on repeat. Yeah. And I watched Pride and Prejudice 150,000 times, and now it is I think it's excellent. So thank you, cruise. I, I have four <laughs> sisters who are big big Jane Austen fans, oh. and they just call it Pret and Pret. <laughs> Like they reference it so often that they don't even they don't have the time to call it Pride and Pret. If they just look at each other and they say Pret and Pret, they know what they're talking about. Uh, this is the Livewire House Party. Let's invite our first guest over. She is known for a bunch of different things. Uh, she created the TV show Shrill, which is based on her memoir of the same name. Uh, she's a New York Times opinion writer, but she actually got her start writing film reviews uh, at the Seattle Alt Weekly, The Stranger, and um, in her new book. Uh, which is titled Actually That's the one time I'm allowed By the producers to say the full name Of the book, this interview uh, She revisits the uh, b- these Beloved and iconic movies from the past 40 years uh, It's withering uh, and it's funny Just like Lindy, who is also one of our uh, Dearest friends here on this program Lindy West, welcome to Livewire Thank you so much for having me uh, this book is really, really funny, uh, and uh, I don't know if a lot of people maybe know that you kind of started out writing about films at The Stranger, and I don't know if we've talked about this on Livewire before, you and I, but I have this really vivid memory of you and I being on Capitol Hill in Seattle eating some pizza when your Sex in the City 2 review got like retweeted by Roger Ebert, I think, and your phone was going off like a slot machine. It was crazy. Was that almost like a... I don't want to overstate it, but was that like a game kind of game changing moment for your writing career? Oh, definitely. Like I had never experienced anything like that before. Um, it was a simpler time when I had my phone set to make a noise every time someone <laughs> interacted with me. Like, you know, yeah. and I just remember being up all night. My phone was like, ding, ding, ding. Cause you know, it got like, I don't know, 10,000 retweets or something, which was just like an unfathomable number to me. And, um, Definitely the first time, like, a famous person paid attention to me, and it was Roger Ebert, which is so heartwarming. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, totally a, a some small turning point in my life, for sure. Now that you're the new Roger Ebert, what would you consider your <laughs> approach to film criticism to be? Well, I mean, I'm just a buffoon, sir. <laughs> uh, like... You know, we can say that I started my career as a film critic, and that's technically true. (laughs) But I was absolutely not qualified um, and did many disservices to the film community. But um, my approach has not changed. (laughs) I've learned nothing. Um, I still... Uh, 15 years later, I like to just be mean and um, exploit the job to just make my own jokes and try to make myself look funny. And was that kind of like, how did this book come about? I know it's some things that you had written previously um, and then some new stuff that you went and did. But was, I mean, were you looking to get back to writing about something that is absolutely unimportant to the world? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. No, I, yes, I wrote two really like heavy books. Um, Like I wrote like a, like a depressing memoir and then an extra depressing uh, 
book about politics. <laughs> and like technically, I think both of those books are also funny, but it was just like a lot, you know, it was just a heavy couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what could I write that would have just the least value <laughs> and <laughs> like what's the most inconsequential, like lowest stakes thing that I could write? Um and these these sort of rewatches of old movies that I started doing at Jezebel, I started with Love Actually, mm-hmm. which became really popular. And people still send that article around like every Christmas, like a tradition, a new tradition, a new holiday <laughs> tradition, which touches my heart. And I was like, I feel like people would buy a book of that. That's probably my most successful piece of writing of all time. And mm. it has millions of views at this point. And... Every year it goes viral again. So I was like, okay, that should, what if I did a whole book of that? It would be fun. I wouldn't have to talk about my feelings or (laughs) like cry or whatever. I could just do like butt jokes. (laughs) I could be the real me. (laughs) The real Lindy West is who we're talking to right now on the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Lindy's new book is actually named sort of For Love Actually, but um, instead it's um, like, we'll just say bleep actually. Um, (laughs) But but let's talk about Love Actually a little bit uh, about your, your essay about it. You were not really a fan, or at least you're pointing out some of the less great elements of this like very, very treasured holiday kind of rom-com what are some of your issues with that film oh i don't know i mean pe- people like to call me like a a noted love actually uh, <laughs> hater <laughs> like like this is something important to me <laughs> the foreground of the counter love actually movement <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, um, the counter insurgents <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. Uh, I, I don't I don't care. I don't care about it. People can like yeah. it if they want. I just think that it feels very manufactured. Mm-hmm. It feels very much sort of um, uh, like created in a lab by men to delight women. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it also it's just reinforces like every kind of toxic relationship mm-hmm. that um, was really romanticized and normalized in the 90s and early 2000s. And I don't know. I'm just like... I don't want it. I don't need it. Like, I don't like it when when men are like, here, we made this thing for you. <laughs> no, thank you. Why don't you ask me what I like? I don't like this. <laughs> do, I mean, do you want more specifics? No, I think that's actually great. Also, we're due for a break. But when we come back, I want to talk about one of the films, maybe the only film that actually gets a positive review. <laughs> uh, in, in your words, it's the only good movie. So, I'm, But I'm trying to get people to stay through the break. So let's do that. Let's take a quick break. This is the Livewire House Party. We are talking to Lindy West, author of Shrill, uh, The Witches Are Coming, and now Bleep Actually, the definitive 100% objective guide to modern cinema. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the 
association that we are part of, I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to Lindy West about her latest book, uh, Bleep, actually, the definitive 100% objective guide to modern cinema, uh, where she writes about a lot of movies that have some uh, shortcomings. And then one movie that you really love, apparently, which is The Fugitive. You say it's the only good movie. Why are you so pro The Fugitive? It's just perfect. What's wrong with it? Name one thing. Luke. <laughs> I'm, hold on. I'm r- trying to run through the whole movie, which I saw at the Crest Cinema in <gasps> Seattle when I was like 12. <laughs> so this is going back for me a ways. But uh, no, I, I think it's no. a good movie, but I'm curious that it's, it's, the, it's the one movie that you bestow all your love upon in this book. Well, I mean, that's kind of just a bit that I'm doing, but all right. also... It is perfect. Harrison Ford is the perfect movie star. I love him so much. Um, I love him more than my family. Um, I like Tommy. I like their their interplay. It's exciting, but it's not scary. Mm-hmm. It keeps mm-hmm. things moving. There's a murder mystery. It's a procedural. You know, he didn't kill his wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good. <laughs> yeah, Chicago. Uh, you know, and then um, and then uh, everything works out. One thing that you bring up that I think is really I didn't think about it, but I totally agree with you. The last like 20 minutes are a chase scene, but there's no CGI. So it was kind of like, it's kind of like kind of crotchety, but like, remember when chase scenes were just like people, I think you say like people getting hit in the actual head with steel beams. <laughs> like I, I totally understand what that feels like, like back in the, back in the day to not have it be like some kind of like computer generated semi truck, but it's just running and hiding. and yeah, like running and hiding, like a normal man running. Like there's yeah. this part, there's this part where it's like, oh no, he went up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> now we have to go up those stairs. Yeah. And it really, it truly is like on a human level, more, at least to me, it's like more exciting and more affecting than, you know, Transformers or whatever, where mm-hmm. just a computer drew it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Before the pandemic, I was at the Hoover Dam. And I was trying to analyze every kind of drain spout to see, could I jump out of that fugitive style <laughs> if I had to? And the answer is no, by the way. But that has forever changed my perception of jumping out of one of those things if I absolutely had to. I know. I feel like I have this perception that, like, 
you could kind of jump off anything as long <laughs> yeah. as like there's water at the bottom. Like <laughs> right. if you if you like make your body into a pencil, you just like shoot right in, right? It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh this is the Live Wire House Party. We're talking to Lindy West about her latest book, which is uh Bleep Actually, the Definitive 100 percent Objective Guide to Modern Cinema, where she writes about a, a bunch of different films. Um in case we haven't chased off like the last three public radio listeners that we had, uh, can we talk about uh, Harry Potter or as you call it, Harry Plot Hole? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, what's, Luke. What's the problem there? Just nothing makes any sense. There's, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad and nothing makes sense. Um, where do you start with Harry Plot Hole? What's not a plot hole in Harry Potter? Well, you're also a fan, though. You write, you, you describe yourself as a so-so Harry Potter freak. So, like, you have an understanding of the films, I guess. What What is it that doesn't add up for you? I don't know. I mean, okay, here's a fundamental issue with Harry Potter. Like, everyone's name is their job. <laughs> like, the plant teacher is named Professor Sprout. Now, did she change her name to Professor right, Sprout? Right. <laughs> and like Harry Potter is just like absolutely chock full of that kind of thing. Right. right. And the train runs on steam, even though it's magical. And and the Hogwarts Express only runs once a year. <laughs> yeah. Is this is this worth the infrastructure investment? <laughs> Who laid the tracks? House elves? <laughs> the wizard economy. Who pays the witch that runs the snack trolley on the Hogwarts Express once a year? Does she get it? <laughs> A, a full salary to keep her alive, to pay her wizard rent to her wizard landlord? Um, I think it's now become very clear to the Livewire listeners, Lindy, that you are the only true voice of film criticism mm -hmm. in these uh, chaotic times. And so we feel really lucky to have you here because we wanted you to help us play a little round of a, a cinematic would you rather. Okay, and these are uh, these are would you rather's that are set in the in the world of film, and they're all referencing films that you talk about uh, in your new book, Bleep Actually: The Definitive Hundred Percent Objective Guide to Modern Cinema. So, do you care to take a swipe at this? I'm ready. Okay, uh, Lindy West, would you rather uh, date the uh, literal vampire Edward Cullen from Twilight, or the emotional vampire uh, that Ethan Hawke plays in the movie Reality Bites? You always got to go with the literal vampire over the emotional vampire for sure. Although, arguably, Edward is also an emotional vampire. True. So, mm, you know, maybe might as well go with Troy and then mm. you could have like a husband who like eats food and sleeps <laughs> um, and doesn't like um, massacre animals in the night. <laughs> One of our producers pointed out that, uh, you know, the movie is called Reality Bites, and it does feature an emotional mm. vampire. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. All right. How, how about this, Lindy? Would you rather live in a theme park full of actual live dinosaurs or a house in which your father operates an electromagnetic shrinking machine with, like, zero safety precautions? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is Jurassic Park up and running where the the Dinosaurs are contained, or are they running wild? Mm. The dinosaurs are contained when you start living there, but <laughs> what happens, we don't know. Much like the shrinking machine is also supposedly, you know, put away and safe, but also who knows? 
So I think a lot about the part in Jurassic Park when they go into the kitchen and there's like flans and cakes and and (laughs) turkey legs everywhere. Uh And I feel lured by that. Mm. Um, Do I get to have the Jurassic Park chef? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Great. Then I choose the park. Also, like Jeff Goldblum is there, right? Yeah. Like I say this with peace and love to Rick Moranis, but it's like, come on, we're going to hang out with Jeff Goldblum or Rick Moranis? Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I can live in like a suburban house with a nerd. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or you can live in Jurassic Park with a hot nerd. I think that's, those, yeah. Are, yeah. those are your options. Yeah. I think okay. we know the answer. <laughs> okay, so we're putting you down for uh, Jurassic Park. How about this, Lindy West? Would you rather be stuck in the bus from speed or on the uh, door that Kate Winslet is sitting on after the Titanic sinks? Um, I don't know. What kind of freak would say door? <laughs> Why would you pick that when you could be on a bus with all your friends mm-hmm. and Let's Keanu see. and Sandy B? Like the okay, I understand that Kate Winslet survives the sinking of the Titanic, but it's way closer to certain death mm-hmm. than the bus with the bomb on it and Keanu Reeves. And uh-huh. like the bus is more like more of a party, I feel like. Yeah. yeah, they really get, they really bond together mm-hmm. to try to overcome this obstacle. Whereas, I mean, presumably the conversation with Kate would be, wasn't there also room for Jack up here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I, I feel like the internet has done some sort of like sleuthing where they've tried to figure out the like surface area of that piece of wood. And it's been decided that like that could have probably held two people. Yeah, there's like a Mythbusters episode or something probably. <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely a bit pleasant. Um, all right. Well, Lindy, this new book is so much fun to read. And again, I'm so happy that you got to write something that was, A, really in your wheelhouse, and B, uh, like not just so uh, just sort of churning your personal experience out in a way that I'm sure is uh, it can be tiring at times. Although I hope you also get back to that because those books are really good as well. Thank you so much. So great to see you. That was Lindy West right here on Livewire. Her new book is Stuff Actually, the definitive 100% objective guide to modern cinema, except the first word of the title is actually something different. Let's not get hung up on that. (laughs) This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking about movies this week. And so our listener question kind of centers around that. We asked the Livewire listeners, what movie have you seen the most and why? I also feel, Elena, like this is as fall falls. We're getting into that kind of like, you know, nesting, getting cozy, getting under the blankets, getting the old favorite. I watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles the other night, Uh. which really holds up. I feel like I'm a John Candy who thinks I want to be a Steve Martin, but really needs to just get back into my... John Candiness, as far as the characters of that movie. <laughs> You're an agent but, of chaos. Yeah. I, you know, and I'm also scamming people across the country with my shower ring business. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's the Livewire audience saying is the film they have seen the most times and why? Uh, here's one from Carol. Carol has seen the Shawshank Redemption, uh-huh. hashtag epic justice more than any other film. And I have a theory about Shawshank. I feel like it is the most watchable movie because it's the most perfectly structured. Uh, you start watching it and you just want to see how it ends, even though you already know how it's going to end because you just want that narrative resolve, you yeah. know? And it is just, it's accessible because mm-hmm. the people who've been doing the bad stuff get their comeuppance mm-hmm. and the people who you've been rooting for 
are sanding a boat mm-hmm. on a beach in Zihuatanejo. It, it's just <laughs> so rewarding. There's no gray area at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that movie so much. Okay, what what are some other movies that the listeners are, have watched many, many times? Here's one from Trudy, who has seen Titanic more than any other film, quote, because of all the attention to ship's details. Oh. Who knew? It's sort of like reading Playboy for the articles, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Not for the ep- epic love story. Right. Like, this is a person who's a fan of, of nautical decorating. <laughs> yeah. They're like, really great work with that porthole. That's right. On Those the steerage doorknobs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I did hear, though, that they did, like, the china patterns are perfect, mm-hmm. and all of the light fixtures are, like, historically accurate. Other than that door, I think everything really fact-checks quite well. <laughs> all right. Can we get one more quick one here before we get to our next guest? Here's one from Jennifer. Jennifer has seen a billion times the movie Moonstruck, <gasps> which I think has one of the best last lines in cinema history. The, okay. The grandfather just goes... I'm so confused. And then the movie's over. <laughs> that's how we should end more episodes of Livewire. I feel like that's a real, you're really punting on having a uh, a kind of a moment of resolution there, right? Yeah. I, yeah. It's like, I think that's, you know, like why end things on a full note? But a great, another great ending is Tombstone. Tom Mix wept. Do you remember that one? I love that one. It's like Jesus wept, you know, it's like a sentence. Yeah. I'm more of a fan of of the end of Caddyshack where Rodney Dangerfield's character just goes, let's dance. Oh, no. He says, everybody, we're all going to get laid. Oh, no. <laughs> let's dance. I think in my evangelical mind, I had converted over to let's dance. I feel like every Rodney Dangerfield movie ends with him yelling something to that effect about dancing or lovemaking or partying, right? Yeah, I think it's the same thing as I'm so confused. It's like, we can't stop the movie, so let's just either dance or just yeah. shrug and just run away. Or Tom Mix can weep. <laughs> That's right. All right. Speaking of films, uh, our next guest is a very sought-after cinematographer who shot the Oscar award-winning film Citizen Four. Uh, Then she moved in front of the camera with her film Camera Person, which was incredible and got rave reviews. Uh, Now she's back with a new project, which actually features her and her father. It's called Dick Johnson is Dead. It's kind of unlike any other film I've ever seen. It's, It's a film that they kind of made together to try to come to terms with his, his death and his dementia. Um, it's really funny. It's really moving. Somehow it kind of has a surprise ending. Yeah. <laughs> which is uh, unexpected. Uh, and we are so excited to have her here on the Livewire House Party. Kirsten Johnson, welcome to the show. Hi, Luke. I'm happy to be here. Um, this is an incredible film that goes in all kinds of directions that uh, I wasn't expecting it to as as the viewer. I, I'm just wondering, starting from the very beginning, how did you pitch your dad on the idea for this movie? I said to my dad, I'm thinking maybe we can make a f- movie with you where we kill you over and over using stun people <laughs> until you really die for real. That was the actual conversation. That was the actual conversation. And he was like, I don't know why anyone would want to watch a movie like that, but I'd love to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, was it was that some kind of catharsis or pre-processing for you, trying to grapple with the idea of, of your dad's death by, by sort of enacting it in multiple ways? Yeah, well, you know, my mom had Alzheimer's, and my dad and I went through it together, and it's brutal, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that we had like a lucky version of it. Mm-hmm. My mother stayed kind and nice and didn't get mean and cantankerous. And 
even still, it just, you know, the waves of anticipatory grief are so profound where you just like, you think you've lost everything you can lose and then boom, you lose something else mm. of their personality. So I think that um, dad and I having lived through that, we, we knew what that looked like. It scared us. And both of us just wondered, is there any way to face this differently? Mm-hmm. Did it take away some of the fear around his death to cuz you could have done a lot of things with your dad to kind of document his life <laughs> and you went with like crushed by air conditioning unit, you know? <laughs> yes, I did. I also went with, you know, do a funeral and with in which all of his friends show up mm-hmm. um and get to hug him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh I also went with something that would expand our capacity to do things together. And um, so the film just gave us opportunities neither of us ever dreamed of. Mm. And even to this day, you know, like yesterday, I got an email from a lawyer in Seattle who had seen the film not knowing it was my dad, and he'd worked with my dad for 30 years, and he just was staggered by the film and then wrote me this extraordinary letter about who my dad was as a professional, um, things that I didn't know about my father. So it was almost like, you know, it brings back to life part of him that I never knew about. Wow. I mean, that that one of the most uh, kind of amazing moments in the film is this funeral that you staged, so your dad's still alive, but you get together what I presume are most of the Seventh-day Adventists in Seattle to <laughs> kind of like eulogize him. And man, the emotion is real in that room. Yeah. Like the people talking about your father and talking about difficult things about his memory loss because he was beginning to suffer from that. That was an intense, intense thing. How did you get all of those people in that room? Like, what did you tell them this was? Yeah, well, I told them exactly what I thought it would be, you know, that we would film it for a movie, but that we were all already grieving the idea of dad's disappearance. And, you know, the only thing I asked of them was to speak in the past tense. Mm. My brother refused to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, what I think is so interesting about this and about life in general is we all have these colossal blind spots and we can't know things until we know them. So, you know, we can't know what it's like to be 90 years old until we're 90 years old. Mm-hmm. We can't know what it's like to lose a parent until we've lost a parent. And so with all of these people at the church who have known our family, you know, for decades and decades and who were at my mother's funeral, I, you know, some of them I talked extensively on the phone about it because they were uncomfortable about it. They had questions. Mm-hmm. Others, you know, I, I simply wrote a letter of invitation explaining everything and they're like, I can't wait to be there. And, you know, and there's some people who dressed up, who wore crazy outfits. Like there are all kinds of things that people did, but they really responded um, with a desire to be there. But I would say Ray DeMazzo, my dad's best friend, who was 91 at the time, he went there. Yeah. He yeah. went yeah. to the most profound emotional place on behalf of all of us, I would say. You must have to open yourself up as a filmmaker for lots of surprises when you're asking people like from your father to the congregants to, to do something. You can't control so much. 
I'm not trying to control anything, Elena. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I think that's the thing that a life of documentary uh, camera work has taught me, mm. that sort of the most powerful experiences I've had have just been these, like, wildly unexpected things. Uh, you know, in the film I made, Camera Person, there's this moment where we're with this Bosnian grandmother and we're sort of pressing her to talk about the genocide and she really didn't want to. And, and you know, I, I kind of couldn't stand it at a certain point because one gets tired of only portraying people as victimized mm-hmm. or as victims. Mm-hmm. So I said to her, let me just interrupt this for a second. Have you always had such a great sense of style? And she was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, finally, something that I really want to talk about. And yeah. she proceeded to, you know, go wild telling us about her fashion sense. And that's what I love about filming documentaries is that you always encounter these sort of profoundly unexpected things about life. And so in thinking about this film, I said, you know, dementia is unexpected. Death is unexpected. How do we use the tools of cinema language to keep mining the ways the unexpected surprises us. Yeah. yeah. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Kirsten Johnson. Uh, her film Dick Johnson is Dead is on Netflix right now. It uh, is a, a documentary about her father's uh, um, sort of elderly years, their relationship. It takes a pretty unconventional approach to investigating that stuff. Um, you're talking about trying to get information out of people when you're interviewing them. I'm wondering, like, there's this one scene where your dad's really cold on a street corner. It looks like he's kind of hitting his limit. You guys are filming a scene where he would be sort of killed on the street by like a random accident <laughs> where somebody swings around with a piece of lumber on their shoulder. And Happens gonna, all the time. He's going to bleed out. <laughs> and and I was just kind of thinking about how, you, you know, in this you're his daughter and you're also a filmmaker. Was it a challenge for you to remember w- which one you were in specific moments? You know, I think sometimes you can be both. Uh, Sometimes you're trying to be both and you're overpowered by the emotion and you have to stop being one or the other. Um, And those kinds of things are unpredictable, which I also find interesting. And that's why we had sort of a a setup of having behind-the-scenes cameras filming what was happening because both my father with dementia and me as the daughter of my father with dementia trying to make a movie about him, like totally unpredictable how any of us are going to respond. And, you know, I could have said, whoa, 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 we got to stop doing this scene because my dad's upset. And then there would have been a conversation with the producers and that would have been filmed. So we sort of built into the process a documentation of our questioning Mm -hmm. of the process. Mm -hmm. Was that at some point kind of exhausting? Like, did you, <laughs> were you very relieved when you could just be in your apartment with your dad with the door closed and there wasn't like four layers of <laughs> filmmaking going on? That just seems kind of exhausting. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, honestly, we didn't film that much for this movie. Mm. Um, I, I'm not a camera person who likes to film all the time in my own life, even though that's surprising to hear. So I was very discreet about the moments where I brought the camera into our lives. I don't want to be a person who's filming other people all the time. I want to be a person who's in relationships with people, and sometimes the camera is a part of it. And, you know, the experience I've had as a documentary filmmaker is, you know, you're there with a camera when something's happening that has stakes. So us leaving our family home that we've lived in for 50 years in Beaux-Arts Village, I'm going to have a camera there. Mm. 
But I don't know where me or my dad is going emotionally in that moment. But I knew something was going to happen, right? And your dad was a psychiatrist? That's correct. Did that, does that play into, I mean, I'm, as a viewer trying to understand how much of Dick Johnson is because of psychiatric training and how much is just his natural way of being, mm-hmm. there's this very powerful moment where you're talking about selling his car. And it's just to watch a human being work through loss and grief in a moment, but sort of keep their equanimity. Mm-hmm. Like it's, like I feel emotional even talking about mm-hmm. it. Is that just your dad or is that because he was a psychiatrist and he turned his brain into that kind of a machine? You know, I, I think equanimity is such a beautiful choice of words, Luke. Um, you know, even yesterday I talked to him in the dementia care facility and he said, you know what? It's crazy, but I'm kind of enjoying myself. Huh. You know, he has these layers of self-awareness. And, you know, he's often said to me, oh, wow, I really feel for you, like, having to watch me lose my mind. Wow. Well, because you mentioned the fact that your dad is is actually alive still, uh, has your dad seen the film? What does he make of it? Oh, my dad's seen the film hundreds of times. Yeah. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of amazing thing about dementia, right? That, that you can sort of encounter and re-encounter things and have them be completely mm-hmm. fresh for you. So dad was incredibly useful during the edit process because he'd see a scene as if for the first time and then could give us commentary about it and say like, this isn't funny enough or really? Like, I don't get, huh? oh, I don't get what's happening here. So that then we would re-edit, you know, in some ways, taking his response um, into account. And certainly the scene with Marta Baida, the wonderful caregiver, um, Mm. she and I and dad were watching the film and then a conversation started happening. And then I got out the camera and filmed her. And then we cut that into the film. So this sort of process of the film as a back and forth between all of the people who were involved in the relationships was the way we conceived it, both in terms of the team of people who made it and the people in front of the camera. Wow. And uh, what what sort of response have you gotten from from people who've watched the film? It, does it tend to drive people towards just really wanting to uh, hug their loved ones, uh, particularly people who are getting older? Like, what's the takeaway from the film for people? Well, you may be aware, Luke, but we're in a global pandemic right now. Uh, <laughs> I've heard something <laughs> about heard that. You've heard something about it. Uh, so I think we are all grappling with the idea of the uncertain in a way we didn't before. And, you know, it may be that we haven't seen our parents in months and months, but now when the pandemic says to us, you cannot see them, everyone has to grapple with conversations they have or hadn't had yet, right? And so Mm. I think for me, you know, I didn't see this pandemic coming either, (laughs) even (laughs) though we were focused on the idea of the unexpected throughout the making of this film. So I think it lands in a context where, all of us are feeling new capacities to face things that we were afraid of facing, um, Mm -hmm. new urgencies, um, new questions. And, you know, one of the responses I get from people is like, yes, I'm going to call someone immediately after seeing this film. But also that I, you know, people are saying I might consider making something with someone Like, what can we Uh make together? You know, you hear Mm -hmm. Elena and Luke, you record things, right? And and the recording Mm -hmm. of a conversation sort of crystallizes a conversation. It It makes it more dynamic and crystalline. It's catalytic. 
to record. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hope in some ways that this film encourages people to say to themselves, it's not too late. Even Mm. if someone that they love is already dead, there are still people who knew them, Mm. who you can talk to, who you can record with. It's not too late to imagine yourself no longer alive and who might miss you Mm. or feel in pain when you are gone. So, you know, that feeling we have of it's all too late, it's not too late for this planet, it's not too late for this country to really face the the pain of who we are. Mm-hmm. You have children yourself, Kirsten. If one of them came to you in about 30 years with the same idea for a project, would you be into that? Wouldn't that be awesome if I had that yeah. child? I mean, I think... Before making this movie, I would have said definitely not. (laughs) Um, But, you know, just because, you know, I think we all care deeply about our image in the world, our legacy. Mm -hmm. But our legacy lives in other people, and we don't know what it is. And the fact is, you know, when I was making Camera Person, I thought I was making it about the past. And then this woman in Bosnia says to me, you know, oh, you're making this so your children will see who you were. And in this case also, I consciously thought, I'm making this movie, my children will know who my father was. But in fact, Mm -hmm. this movie is also evidence of who I am and who I was Mm -hmm. for the future in which I will not be. This movie is just so powerful and it really really takes the fear out of a lot of things that I think Mm -hmm. we walk around afraid of, you know. Uh, in our lives and so it's just and it's super funny yeah so great job Kirsten this is a really really uh, important piece of filmmaking thank you all so much that was Kirsten Johnson right here on the Livewire house party her film Dick Johnson is dead is available right now on Netflix Uh, we gotta take a very quick break but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with much more Livewire Hey, special thanks this episode to Kelly Griffin of Seattle, Washington, and Jim Pirette of Northfield, Minnesota. Kelly and Jim are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are extremely grateful for that support because it is the only way we are able to do this show week in and week out. So a huge thanks to Kelly and Jim. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank at my house. Elena Passarello is at her place in Corvallis, Oregon. You ready to hear some music, Elena? Oh, I can't wait. This is actually really, really good this week. I'm super excited we were able to get this person on. Uh, she rose to fame during her two years as a cellist uh, as part of the Grammy Award winning African American string band. Carolina Chocolate Drops, which are amazing. Then she struck out on her own, and her solo debut album, Very Colored Songs, a tribute to Langston Hughes, 
is actually being re-released this year on Smithsonian Folkways, and we are going to hear from some of that now. Joining us all the way from New Orleans, Layla McCalla. Welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. Um, this album is amazing. I, I feel remiss that I didn't know about it uh, back when it was originally released, but I'm super excited that uh, Smithsonian Folkways is putting it back out because it is a gem. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, it feels it feels good. I mean, when you when you released it in 2014, did you have a sense that it would it would have a kind of a second life like this? I feel like it's a, it's it's hitting a lot of people's radar for the first time right now. Yeah, I mean, I always felt that the the poems themselves were timeless. And, um, and I knew that that would carry the songs, you know, Mm -hmm. um, what I didn't realize maybe was where this album would take me in my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it's exciting to kind of reconnect with the, with the reasons why I started, um, putting out records. Cause this is my first album and, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a big, uh, sort of coming into myself as an artist, um, and kind of claiming that about myself. Well, was there a particular piece of work by Langston Hughes that kind of sparked in your imagination the idea for this record? Yeah, I would I would say it's the song uh, "Heart of Gold," which is the the song that opens the record. Yeah, that's the song that I think I first really heard music. You know, when when I was reading this poem mm-hmm. and. Um, so it, it's been interesting to think about that because the deeper I go into his work and, you know, I'm, I, I hear music in a lot of his work. Um, it doesn't feel exclusive to the poems that are represented on this album, but um, I did a show. It was like an album release show. And um, I've been performing the songs for so many years now. And uh, I tried to, you know, stay true to the order of the songs on the on the album. And even that was kind of like, wow, my head was just in such a different place. Mm. When I first assembled these songs, I'm like, wow, I had a really specific idea of the story I was trying to tell that. And that story has really changed. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been interesting to just think about, you know, how your mind changes, but then the songs kind of are, um, are still true to some, some part of your journey, you know, that's gotta be really interesting because the, first time you approached the album, you're working with a text that's 60 years old. And now right. when you reapproach the album, there's a new older text and it's yours. Like you, right. you're your own archive <laughs> now. Right. I'm like, wow, I used to really be like wanting to be like super creative about songwriting, you know, <laughs> not that I'm, I'm not, but I'm like, God, it's so nice to connect with that sort of beginner's mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, cool. I guess that's the benefit of this COVID reality is like we all have to kind of go back to the beginning of something. Yeah. Right. It's sort of like first thought, best thought. <laughs> right. You know? Totally. Totally. Um, well, what song are we going to hear today? So I'm going to play a song for you. This one's called Song for a Dark Girl. This was uh, comes from a poem written by Langston Hughes in 1927. Mm. And, um, and I find that uh, the words to this song really seem to apply to our world today. Yeah. All right. This is Layla McCalla here on Livewire. Mm-hmm. 
right here on the Livewire House Party. Her album, Very Colored Songs, a tribute to Langston Hughes, is available on Smithsonian Folkways right now, and it is a very powerful, very beautiful record, so I would recommend checking that out. All right, before we get out of here, of course, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, We are going to be chatting with the very hilarious very wise Phoebe Robinson. Mm. It's always a treat. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to talk to uh, Thomas Page McBee. He's a writer who decided to try his hand at boxing. <laughs> then it actually ended not the way I was expecting it to. Uh, then we're going to hear some music from the incredibly talented Sammy Brew. Plus, of course, we will be getting your answers to our listener question, uh, which is where our social media manager, Ariana Donoville, comes in. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Luke. Have you been um, doing any creative projects this week? Ooh, no, none this week. That's okay. You know what? <laughs> it was a busy week. We need to recharge. <laughs> Actually, this is good. Uh, that's the right yeah. answer. I feel like every week you're doing some elaborate thing. Right now, you just need to like have some Ariana time to just yes. build it all back up. I've been watching a lot of movies. Hey. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's on theme for this episode. Uh, how about next episode? What is the question going to be for the listeners? The question is, what's something small that you finally just accepted? (laughs) Oh, man. That's a tricky one. (laughs) (laughs) What is the best way for people to uh, let us know their answers to that question, Ariana? Listeners can submit their answers through our social channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Livewire Radio, as well as on Facebook. All right. Please get at us on the social media and uh, let us know your answer to that question. Ariana, thank you very much. Enjoy this time of reflection (laughs) 
and relaxation in your life. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Lindy West, Kirsten Johnson, and Layla McCalla. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. A. Walker Spring composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Stan Amy of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.